Hi everybody and welcome to this uh, Master Investor webinar with me, James Faulkner, and with the Master Investor himself, Jim Mellon. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hi James, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Um, I'm delighted to say we've got a, a great turnout today and um, it's, it's great to see that you've all prized yourself away from the uh, the wonderful weather to, uh, to listen to Jim today, so I'm sure he's very flattered. Um, I'm going to pass you over to Jim in just a moment for the presentation, um, but just to say we'll be doing a, a Q&A at the end, so thank you everybody for all your questions and we'll try and get through as many as possible, but obviously we do get quite a few, so uh, apologies for those that we don't get to. Um, so without further ado, um, over to you, Jim. Thank you, James. Um, so I'm trying to share my screen. Here we go. Should be a master of Zoom by now, but uh, as always, things take a bit more time. I'm in, I'm in Dubai, everyone, and uh, it's very hot here. It's kind of knocking on 40 degrees Celsius in the heat of the day. Um, but my most recent piece that I wrote for Master Investor, which was came out this week, was about just how interesting and attractive I think the UAE is uh, as, as a hub for investment. And if their stock market becomes broader, it's certainly something that we uh, all at Master Investors should be looking at. Um, I've bought a flat uh, from a developer called MR and they're listed actually, and they have a dividend yield um, about 11 times earnings. It looks interesting and I'm gonna dig a bit deeper. And as I said in my piece, I'm going to um, update everyone with uh, further thoughts on that. But the investments I'll be talking about today are more prosaic in, in, in markets that we're all more familiar with. Uh, and um, I've got about a 20 minute presentation and then it'll be back to James to conduct some Q&A for us. Um, now the interesting thing is that uh, we're in a bit of a dichotomy at the moment, as everyone knows, the markets are apparently still quite strong, but beneath the waves, there's a lot of paddling going on, a lot of sector rotation. Uh, the tech stocks that were very strong have lost momentum. Cyclical stocks that uh, and Master Investor we were recommending in the last few months have done very well. Um, and there's a lot of rotation in markets around the world as well. So you're getting, you know, uh, outperformance in some markets and underperformance in others. And there's a reason for this. And uh, I'm using the Goldilocks analogy. So on the surface, it all looks like we're in a Goldilocks scenario. But um, I don't know if you guys saw this week that Walter Mondale, who was formerly the vice president under uh, Jimmy Carter, and then ran for president against Ronald Reagan, he was absolutely tranced. He only won two states. But his famous catchphrase was, where's the beef? And as I'm using, where's the porridge? Um, you know, if you look at markets uh, with a laconic eye, like I do, um, it's difficult to see, you know, very vast swathes of value uh, anywhere, really. Um, I found some stocks that I'm going to talk about today and I think they represent good value and probably do quite well. I hope they'll do quite well anyway. Um, but generally speaking, markets are pretty well priced for per perfection, especially in the United States. 
And although it looks like a Goldilocks scenario with recovery vaccination rates in some countries, particularly the US and uh, the UK, uh, Israel and so forth, uh, and the UAE where I'm at the moment being very, very good, um, you know, the anticipation of uh, good, strong economic rebounds uh, has already taken place in many cases. So I don't really see uh, tremendous upside in markets. Uh, and that is amplified by the fact that we're also seeing um, a divergence in monetary policy around the world. And the two starkest examples of that are between China, which is the number two economy, but catching up relatively quickly with the US, the number one economy. Uh, the Chinese have taken the view that uh, they need to tighten the creation of money and credit um, to avoid inflationary pressures and to make the one, their currency, stronger so that it becomes more attractive for use uh, in the pan-Asian world. So it becomes the Asian reserve currency supplanting the dollar. And indeed, they're talking about a digital yuan as well, which uh, would be really a first in the world uh, sponsored by a major government. So they're tightening, uh, and that's having an interesting effect in China because you're getting um, some non-bank lenders uh, feeling the strain, some property companies in China feeling the strain. But overall, China being a sort of quasi-command economy is able to do that and take the pain of tightening. Whereas in the United States, they're printing money like drunken sailors, and uh, you know, the, not a week goes by without Biden announcing another trillion, another trillion there, another trillion here. Um, you know, vast amounts of expenditure. Uh, some of that expenditure is needed in infrastructure, where the roads and bridges in the United States are really in poor shape. Uh, but some of it is not needed. I mean, he sent out checks to basically every adult in the U.S. of fourteen hundred dollars. Uh, Americans, not all of them, of course, because there's huge inequality uh, in America, but Americans are sitting on pretty hefty savings. Uh, the rich part of America's got massively richer during the pandemic. They certainly don't need the $1,400 uh, checks. Uh, and those uh, checks and munificence generally represent a future liability for subsequent generations. They also represent the threat that the US dollar hit by uh, the money printing and therefore the devaluation of money, which ultimately always results in a reduction in purchasing power for the currency that's being overprinted. Uh, and also by the fact that um, the US trade situation is probably going to get worse rather than better, um, that the US dollar is likely to um, fall uh, from these levels um, fairly considerably over the next few years. Um, you know, you, the foreign exchange markets are interesting because um, they're supposedly perfect markets, but you get very divergent opinions. But my general view is that the trend that we've seen for the last year or so of the US dollar gradually going downwards is going to persist and we'll see further falls in the US dollar against most major currencies and particularly against the yuan. So, uh, what we're seeing in the United States is massive money printing. At some point, that has to stop um, because otherwise the US will get very 
high rates of inflation. Um, uh, and when that starts to stop and you have China tightening and you'll have the US tightening, bond yields will go up and equity markets will probably react very negatively um, to that effect. But at the moment, the US, as I said earlier, is printing like, uh, you know, the, 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 it's parting like 1999. So um, we have to be uh, concerned that both uh, the US government yields will start to go up in response to this massive amount of debt that's being issued, even though the Federal Reserve is buying a lot of it, um, and that uh, that inflation will and is rearing its ugly head. So there's a divergent uh, mechanism at work in the world today, which has not been seen because we, we haven't had two genuine superpowers with monetary um, uh, competence uh, for a very long time. So it's, it's a, we're in an interesting and potentially dangerous phase Another thing I, Andrew Scott, my friend, sent me this morning, which I thought was very interesting, was that in my whole investment history, and that goes back to the early 1980s, um, the size of the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, has been getting shorter. Uh, and uh, you may remember uh, Janet Yellen, who's now the Treasury Secretary in the United States, being a, a short person, uh, and progressively from Volcker, who was a giant onwards, uh, the height has been shrinking, along with interest rates. It's uh, it's not a scientific analysis, but uh, recently the new guy Powell is taller than his predecessors, and uh, interest rates have been beginning to go up. So it may just be a foretaste of what's to come. But I thought it was rather amusing that Andrew sent this on. But you know, the thing about inflation is that central bankers may feel that they're on top of the situation, that they know how to manage inflation, but I'm sure that the central bankers from the 1970s, when there was very high inflation in the UK and in the US, thought that they were competent enough to manage inflation as well. But once the inflation genie is out of the bottle, and it is, it's very hard to put it back in. So we as investors, and we've been signaling this for the last 18 months to two years, need to take into account what's coming, which is higher inflation. And how are we going to deal with that? And that's what I'm going to talk about um, in this presentation. Uh, here's a sort of graphic description of inflation. You can see it all around. It's insidious. And the price of services getting a haircut, uh, the price of a lawyer, the price of, you know, really everything has been going up. And the effective purchasing power of 20 pounds since 1990 is represented by these shopping trolleys, but also you may notice that when you go and buy stuff that, you know, instead of getting the 38 Ziplocs, you're now getting the 34. So companies are dealing with, rather than raising prices, sometimes they're just shrinking the size of the goods that you're getting. This is inflation, just by a different means. Um, and we are at the point now, you know, some people say, well, you know, it's going to be a short term burst of inflation because of all the money printing that's taken place during the pandemic. Uh, but I feel that this is going to be the beginning of a fairly prolonged period of inflation, because we are now in this unusual situation where self-inflicted uh, economic uh, depression, really, uh, is now being replaced by economic rebound, which is extremely strong in some countries. And in the UK, for instance, we're going to have extremely strong growth this year and next year. Um, and that will cause wage inflation, because although there is some slack in the US and British economy and elsewhere in the world, there's not that much slack. And, um, you know, there's not that many uh, 
there'll be lots of vacancies for jobs and not that many people to fill them. So I think we're going to be in a period when uh, we've got to be very watchful for the effects of, as I said, inflation. And I've, I've gone over that far too much, but you can see on this chart that actually the headline inflation rate in the US and in the UK and elsewhere is rising. And I think you're going to see considerably higher rates of inflation. You might even see five, six percent in the US by the end of this year. Um, that might result in the Fed tightening a bit, um, but it'll probably be too late by then. And the inflation genie, as I said, is out of the bottle. So what do we do about this? Well, the normal thing to do is to buy gold, silver, platinum, palladium, etc. And we have, as you know, been big balls of those. Gold was really good um, for a period. Silver has been very good, really, for you know the last year. It's up 65%. Gold is only up 3 to 5% in the last uh, year. But beyond before that, it, was, it did very well for us. Um, and why is this? Well, uh, the, there are three points I want to make. One is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have stolen the thunder uh, of gold and silver which are the traditional hedges against inflation. And you have to remember that going back for centuries now, gold preserves purchasing power extremely well. Um, and as indeed does silver, uh, and the silver has caught up a lot in terms of its ratio uh, with gold. Um, and the same applies for platinum, palladium. Um, but Bitcoin has come along and uh, much to my uh, bemusement. I, I have a friend who's an, a, an, a business colleague who is a big believer in Bitcoin and has done absolutely brilliantly for the company in which I've got an investment, uh, you know, buying and holding Bitcoin, but it's just too scary for me. And I probably lose the key, the, the number key, <laughs> which another friend of mine has done for his, what would now be 20 or $30 million worth of Bitcoin. He lost it a few years ago. Um, but uh, it's the, the thing about gold and silver is that, and particularly silver and, and platinum, is they have industrial uses um, as well as being ornamental and designed for hoarding. So I think that uh, we're going to find, and you've seen recently that you know Bitcoin has fallen in price uh, almost overnight by 20, 25 percent. And the other cryptocurrencies have followed and they may go back up, they may go back down. There is definitely a shortage in the sense that it's a scarce supply of Bitcoins. Um, but my preference remains with gold. And I feel that now, you know, gold is around $1,790 an ounce. Silver is uh, somewhere over $26 an ounce. I'm pretty sure that by the end of this year, we're going to be looking at 2200 to 2500 on gold. And we could be looking at 35 to $40 on silver. Those in themselves would represent excellent rates of return. Um, but obviously the better way of playing gold and silver is to um, buy the companies that produce or are about to produce or are expected to produce um, uh, the metals and particularly the ones that are well uh, managed. And um, so I've been loading up on the, in this slight hiatus period and the gold uh, price, I've been loading up on uh, some stocks and offloading some other ones because they have just gone up too much. And some of the stocks that, you know, we've recommended in the last six months to a year have done really, really well. I mean, basically everyone's a hero in a bull market, but particularly the recovery stocks that um, we highlighted um, 
in the past uh, few months have done extremely well. I'm going to give you some advice on what you might want to do with that, because as someone uh, sent in questions in advance uh, of this presentation said, you know, you often get, uh, you know, investment advisors or pundits like myself giving advice on what to buy, but rarely do they give you advice on when to sell. And um, I just want to give you some top sizing advice uh, as well, if you've got some of these stocks that I've been, um, you know, recommending in the past few months. Uh, now, what, what's interesting to to me at the moment? Okay, so I'll start with um, big pharma companies in the U.S. Uh, we all know that the smaller vaccine producers like BioNTech, um, Novavax, and so forth have done extremely well uh, because obviously come from a small base but you know Pfizer for instance owns half of the rights to BioNTech uh, sales of that drug and they've not done what Astra has done which is they are making a profit every time they sell a vaccine um, they the sales will be somewhere between 10 and 15 billion dollars this year and probably the same next year because it's likely that we're all going to need booster shots for these vaccines especially the vaccines are, are tweaked so Pfizer is a big company uh, but nonetheless, the significance of the vaccine is not uh, to be underestimated. And this company is only, um, you know, about uh, 12 times forward earnings. It has a rock solid balance sheet. It's a fairly well managed company. It's got a good pipeline and its yield is just under 4%. So I would recommend Pfizer as one of the big uh, biotech companies names in the US uh, to buy at the moment. Um, I'd also actually recommend Astra in the UK, although it's not on this list, because it's come under a tremendous amount of pressure, you know, the French president uh, sniping at it. First of all, the vaccine doesn't work, according to him, and, but he still doesn't get enough of it. So, you know, we all know the, the absolutely appalling performance of the European Union vis-a-vis -vis the Astra uh, vaccine. Um, but Astra is a good company and uh, I think that it's probably been held down a bit by all this publicity about the vaccine and uh, you know the European Union threatening to sue it and probably will sue it but won't win. Um, so you may want to pick up uh, some Astra in the UK if your principal concentration is in UK stocks. The other one I like is Regeneron. It's, uh, it's become a big pharma company in the US. It's about 12 times earnings. It has uh, strong franchises, particularly in uh, cancer and cardiovascular uh, disease, as well as in the eye. And uh, it's about 12 times earnings. And um, I think it's a, it's a, a pickup stock. So you, you should think about buying that. And the idea was that, uh, you know, Biden would come in and cut US drug prices. And I think there will be some cutting of US drug prices. But in a world where we've been battered by the uh, pandemic, uh, people are looking more favorably towards big pharma and innovation in biotech generally. So I would recommend that uh, Regeneron becomes, this is a new idea, becomes part of your portfolio. Another new idea, it's not new, of course, but um, this comes really from the banging of the drum by my friend Will Nutting, um, is uh, Tesco, all right? So Tesco sold off its Thailand business uh, paid out a special dividend. The share capitalization is difficult to get a, a grip on because they adjusted the number of shares and all this sort of stuff, had share consolidation. But uh, the bottom line is it's just over 10 times earnings. It's got a 
fortress like balance sheet, it's four and a bit percent yield. They'll probably pay more special dividends in due course. It is the absolutely best UK retail company, and it's going to be a cash machine for years to come. And if we do get inflation, uh, the food retailers should continue to do quite well. Um, and so I recommend that. They've also got a very strong um, online offering, which has been accelerated by the pandemic. And indeed, they are probably the largest in terms of online supermarket delivery. And, you know, you think of the UK, it's a very big economy. It's uh, fifth biggest economy in the world. Uh, and yet our biggest retailer is only valued at $25 billion. Uh, so it's cheap. I would bank that one away. I have consistently liked Japan for a while now. And, you know, rather than getting into the weeds of which Japanese stock you should or shouldn't buy, the easiest way to do it is to buy the MSCI iShares Japan ETF. I think Japan's got another 20 or 30% ahead of it in the next 18 months. And the yen is undervalued. Um, there's some activity going on in Japan, activism um, that you may have uh, read about. That, you know, Toshiba is under threat from foreign raiders. This is all good news. And the next one is Melrose. Melrose is a company that buys companies, improves our margins, spits them out. Um, they've just sold a uh, air conditioning company for a couple of billion pounds. Um, they uh, bought GKN. It didn't look particularly good because of the pandemic, but now it looks really good. Um, they are only 15 times earnings, so a low yield because they're, uh, you know, they're always reinvesting. Uh, but they are really, really good at managing companies, and it's around $10 billion, pounds in, uh, $10 billion in market cap. So I would go for that one. Now, these are some of the stocks that I've already recommended uh, to you. Um, uh, I also recommended IAG. I've taken it off the list because it's done extremely well. And, you know, I'm not really sure that uh, people from the UK will be going on droves uh, to European destinations in the summer. I would expect that the UAE a few European destinations and the US will open up uh, for British vaccinated, probably vaccinated uh, passengers. But I don't think the British are in any hurry to open up uh, the corridors to France or Spain or Italy um, because I think the British government has a cunning plan to keep people at home spending money in the UK rather than spending it overseas. So I've taken uh, I take IAG off, off this list. As you know, IAG is the owner of British Airways among other airlines such as Aer Lingus and Iberia. Um, Allianz, I still like. It's uh, one of the best insurance companies in the world. It's 10 times earnings, it's a 5% yield. It's amazing to me as a German company that there's nearly a 5% rock solid yield um, at a time when Germans with deposits in the bank are getting negative interest rates. So it's, you know, it seems to me an anomaly and I would put that in your portfolio. In fact, it's already been a recommendation of mine for a while. I've been a big buyer of Lloyds Bank, as some of you know. Uh, okay, so this is the story on Lloyds Bank. We recommended Lloyds Bank at about 27 or 28p. It's currently 42. It just went ex a small dividend of 0.7p. I think that uh, Lloyds, my target is 55. But if you've done very well in Lloyds, um, then I would top size some of it here. So around 42, 43p. I'd take some of it off the table uh, and run the rest for around 55. As I said in one of my notes or my last master investor appearance, you rent bank stocks. You don't, you know, the big, especially the big ones, the BMOFs, they're, they're not particularly innovative. Um, I don't think the threat from challenger banks is particularly strong. That's my own view. Um, and uh, 
that Lloyds will go up and down with the economy. The economy is going to be very strong. Lloyds will have low provisions. Um, and there is a sort of quasi new management there, although it looks to be like the, <coughs> the big banks just recycle the same people between them. <coughs> uh, so another 20% upside. Excuse me, I'll drink some water. <clears throat> I recommended, um, I don't have to my voice, uh, I recommended uh, VW and Porsche. Sorry about this. <clears throat> uh, some time ago, I've taken VW off the table, uh, but we still got Porsche, and Porsche is the ultimate parent company of VW. I think these guys, the Germans, are going to eat Tesla's lunch, and they're much, much undervalued compared to uh, Tesla and the other electric vehicle companies, pure electric vehicle companies, and deep, uh, Porsche is only about six times forward earnings. I think my voice is returning, thank heavens. Um, and uh, I still like Carnival. Uh, it's gone up a lot from the bottom, but I don't know if you looked at the bookings for cruise liners, but they are extremely strong. Um, you know, the people who like cruising <laughs> are really missing it and uh, the pricing is gonna be pretty strong um, and cruising is coming back. So sometime towards the middle of this year, <clears throat> limited cruising is starting in the United States and Carnival is the best and biggest of the companies. So I'd recommend that one. Um, I'm still holding Marston's. As you know, just before the pandemic, Green King was bought by Hong Kong Interest. Marston's was around a pound a share when I first got into it, it's around a pound a share today, uh, having been down at 20 in the height of the pandemic. But, you know, uh, there's been consolidation in the pub sector. I think someone's going to come along and buy Marston's. They did a very clever deal with Carlsberg where they vended in their brewery interests uh, into a joint venture with Carlsberg, so they restored their balance sheet. In terms of gold, uh, which I mentioned is a must-have in your portfolios at the moment, I like Barrick, it's the biggest gold miner in the world. I like Kinross as well. Uh, they're relatively cheap, they're very efficient, good gold producers. Um, I'm still holding some Venturex, it's done extremely well. It's up about five times in the last uh, few months. Um, it's an Australian copper play. It's been uh, taken over effectively by a really veteran guy in the mining business in Australia, which is the reason that the stock has done so well. It's got a, a huge deposit. Uh, in, in Australian copper. Um, and that one, if you've got it, uh, you might want to take some profit here, uh, but run the rest of it. Um, and if you have followed that one and, and bought into it, you'll have done extremely well. Likewise with dark mining, which I haven't put up here at the moment because it's a very small company, but it's done extremely well from a profit point of view, as has Zenith Minerals. Uh, they just made a um, announcements about uh, further gold discoveries and activities with lithium in the United States. And that again has done extremely well. So um, I would continue to run that and I would look for another double on the Zenith share price. And then the perennial favorite is, is of course Condor, which I'm a director of and the largest shareholder of. It's getting closer to production. They've announced that they've bought equipment so they can produce. Um, that equipment will take about a year to install. They've uh, proven up more reserves. They, you know, It's a very, very well run company in my view and the price per ounce of gold on the ground is excellent. Uh, the downside is in Nicaragua, but at the moment, Nicaragua looks relatively stable. So those are my recommendations. Now, 
some of you will be familiar with uh, SPACs. Uh, that's been the, you know, along with Robin Hood, GameStop, and all the other excitement at the beginning of the year, uh, SPACs have been uh, the sort of easy way to riches for those who've created the SPACs, not necessarily those who invest in the SPACs. Uh, but the SPAC boom is over. It's well and truly over. Um, there are a lot of SPACs sitting there, uh, and I don't know if you know this, but you need to invest in, uh, you, you need to rate, use the money that you've raised in, in the SPAC uh, within two years, or you have to hand it back to the uh, shareholders. And so all these guys are running around looking for deals, um, and there aren't that many great deals out there at the right price. So it may be better timing for people to go and negotiate with SPACs to put their companies into a SPAC. But from the point of view of investing in de novo SPACs, I would not do it. The, 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 that it, It's completely over that boom. It was a sort of, uh, it was a reflection of the money printing that's been going on and the over-enthusiasm and, and frankly speaking, rank ignorance of some market participants. And so uh, that's well and truly over. And it may be a signal that the US market is beginning to flop over and uh, that a correction lies ahead, which I think is the case. Now, as you will all know, or most people will know, I've been really keen on alternative protein uh, area and our company Agronomics has done very well in the stock market. Um, uh, you know, my uh, colleague Anthony Chow and uh, Laura Turner and others who've recently joined, um, we've done a great job in terms of um, uh, getting us to the forefront of cellular agriculture. And my, my book came out quite recently um, on the subject. I think this is an enormous industry. The total addressable market for uh, dairy, seafood, meat, uh, and the other materials that can be produced in, in laboratories and are being produced in laboratories like leather or threads or collagen um, is over $5 trillion, which is twice the size of the UK economy and makes the electric vehicle market look rather puny by comparison. This is going to be a massive market. And I'll just tell you my predictions right now. Number one is the dairy industry as we know it will have gone in 10 years time. Uh, already a quarter of the US uh, milk market is alternatives and they're all plant-based. But as soon as the precision fermented milks, which are exact replicas of milks without any cow involvement uh, come along and, and they're very close to the market then uh, the established dairy uh, industry is dead. And uh, you can make up your own mind how you're gonna play that. One way is to look at New Zealand. Uh, their uh, milk producers are the largest companies on the New Zealand Stock Exchange. If you're brave, I would look at shorting some of them. Ontario is the biggest of them. Um, but the milk market is gone. In, in 2030, about half the meat market, and I make this, uh, this is not a fanciful prediction, will be either plant-based or cell ag-based. And similarly, about half the seafood market uh, will be uh, made in laboratories or industrial uh, plants. And our company that we've invested in, Blue Nalu, uh, which is in the agronomics portfolio, uh, is the world leader in that area. So I'm very, very big on this. As yet, these companies are not particularly highly valued. Uh, and there's lots of white space opportunity and otherwise you know, creating new companies in the area, licensing opportunities, carbon trading opportunities, because existing food uh, production is highly uh, carbon emitting, but the new alternative companies are to get carbon credits. So there's an opportunity there as well. So we're, Antti and myself are working very hard to expand our 
footprint in the area. And I'm very pleased to say that agronomics and our, our own interests are the now the world's biggest investors in cellular agriculture. And we want to maintain um, that position because, you know, whatever, you know, people say, and, you know, there are always two sides of arguments. The bottom line is that animal husbandry is the biggest producer of greenhouse gas emissions uh, in the world. Um, it's a real threat to our human health because 80% of antibiotics go into farmed animals and God help us if we get a, uh, a bacterial pandemic as opposed to um, a viral pandemic like this one. It would make this one look like a walk in the park, frankly. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm motivated by reduction in animal cruelty and, you know, anyone who's watched Seaspiracy, the Netflix documentary, or Kiss the Ground, the other one about the beef industry, will know exactly what I'm talking about. But, you know, there are many reasons why we need to reduce intensive farming in the world. Um, and uh, I think that this will be encouraged, particularly as we go into COP26, uh, which is the... Um, the big show in Glasgow at the end of this year, when also the Longevity Forum will be taking place, funny enough. Um, and uh, so, you know, just keep looking at that sector. I think some of the companies in that sector will go public. We've already had Beyond Meat, uh, which is obviously a plant-based company going public. Oatly has announced it's going public, probably at a $10 billion valuation. Uh, Impossible is, which is the big uh, rival of uh, Beyond in the United States, is rumored to be going public. Uh, again, at about a $10 billion valuation. But when we start seeing the cell ad companies going public, we're going to see some real fireworks. So just keep an eye on that. Um, and then lastly, I just want to update you on Juvenescence. I know Juvenescence is a private company, but it will be going public at some point in the not too distant future. And the great news is that our first uh, product has gone on the market in the United States. It's called Metabolic Switch. Um, it doesn't taste very nice, but as you remember from your uh, younger days, uh, you know, medicines weren't supposed to taste very nice, but it's a uh, ketone ester fuel. It's highly potent, puts you into ketosis without having to do the diet. And it's now on the market in the United States. And I think it will do extremely well. And so that's the first uh, product from a, you know, a large number, hopefully, that will come out of the Juvenescence um, uh, family of companies in the next uh, few years. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's definitely, you know, one to watch when you know, there are some uh, further announcements about a public offering in uh, Juvenescence. Um, I, yeah, some of the investments in Juvenescence have done extremely well. So um, and that will provide further fuel for the fire. And then lastly, a little plug for my book, not because um, I intend to get rich from writing because all the pro profits from this book go to support the Good Food Institute, which is the world's leading advocacy group for uh, and some of you will have heard Bruce Friedrich talk on Master Investor events. He's a great guy um, uh, to try and promote the reduction in intensive farming and the uh, an improvement in human health and environmental health by promoting uh, plant alternatives as well as cell ag um, alternatives. So if you haven't got the book, please buy it because it's all for a, a good cause. So in a nutshell, we're going into a period, as I've been signaling for a while, of inflation. Don't be despondent if you feel that gold isn't moving as fast as Bitcoin. One day it will, and uh, you know, you'll know you be well rewarded. I think that now is and just continue to invest more in gold, silver, proxies of gold, silver, platinum. Um, the stocks I've highlighted, I'm sure that uh, the team at Master Investor will be happy to send you a copy of those if you want it. 
Um, but I think we've got some good stocks there. You don't need a lot of stocks to create a good portfolio. Um, but you know, I think it's time to reduce adventurism. In other words, you know, blue sky stocks, you know, in electric vehicles or flying cars or uh, you know, space and so forth. I, I think they're going to come to ground, and uh, so literally, um, so I'd be a bit wary about uh, about being over enthusiastic in that area. And as far as cryptocurrencies, look, I honestly, uh, I'm lucky to have made money through my uh, business partner's uh, venture, but it's not something that I know enough about, nor feel totally comfortable about in dabbling in um, myself. So. That's a that's a summary of where we're at, and I, if I'm invited back, um, I will update you all sometime in the summer. So thank you very much for listening, and I'll hand it back to James to do a Q and A session. Thanks for that, Jim. Um, definitely a lot to take in there. Um, does seem like you you're striking a much more cautious, cautious note now. Now that um, you know markets do look like they might be uh, quite toppy, and we've been getting quite a lot of questions in terms of you know whether you, you, you do expect a, a correction to come. I just wonder what what kind of magnitude you think that the, the correction will will be given that you know stocks do look priced to perfection, but but yet they still are pretty much the only game in town when you look at you know the alternatives. Yeah, um, I mean forecasting you know exact moves on markets is something I can't do and nor can anyone else. And if they can, they're certainly not going to be sitting in Dubai uh, with a full schedule of meetings because they'll be on a beach somewhere <laughs> enjoying their, their <laughs> proceeds. Um, but I would say that, you know, there has been a strong bull market. Uh, but as I said earlier, you know, there's a lot of paddling underneath. Uh, you know, not all stocks have been going up, not all sort of sectors have been going up, and there's been a lot of rotation. My own view is that we'll have at least a 10 to 20% uh, correction. Um, so at the moment, we're in a pass-to-parcel game, right? You know, people are... Uh, you know, still participating because they think they can eke out a little bit more return. And as you rightly point out, where else are you going to make any money? Um, but it, you don't want to be the last person holding the parcel. So reduce your exposure really to to stocks. Um, and if you do have any stocks, then just be very focused on on ones that are resilient. Um, you've been talking for quite a while now about the the return of inflation. Um, and we've got a question from uh, Matthew Lambert, and it's what is Jim's view on UK interest rates, um, you know, related to uh, to mortgages, and it's all about, you know, is now a good time to to borrow and to fix, given that you know the price of money's so cheap, so presumably over the long term, you know, inflation's going to erode the value of that debt. Is now the time to to lock in cheap money? Yes. Um, so I was reading something today about the hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic between the wars and how the man who made the most money during that period, and there was only very few of them who made money, most people were completely wiped out by the effects of inflation. Uh, he borrowed vast amounts of money, put it into physical assets uh, and to gold, which he hoarded in Switzerland so he could avoid taxation in, uh, in Germany, and he ended up as a very, very wealthy individual. I don't know what happened to him, you know, in the subsequent Second World War, but anyway, that he was known as the guy who'd made uh, the money in the hyperinflationary period. 
And I don't think the same strategy is out of place at the moment. If the banks are prepared to lend you money at, on a fixed rate for very low interest rates over a long period of time, you know that in periods, uh, I'm not talking about hyperinflation, but you know, five, six, seven percent inflation, that the real assets outperform uh, you know, bonds, as an example, uh, in those periods, and that would include probably property. So if you're borrowing to uh, buy property or real assets, then it's probably a good strategy. And I suppose it depends how benign the, uh, the inflation environment is, doesn't it, as well? Because during the 1970s, we had really high inflation and, and stock prices actually did really poorly, didn't they, in, in real terms um, during periods uh, during the 1970s. So I suppose it also depends where, where you put the money, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, in the 70s, um, not that I was managing money then, but in the 70s, uh, you had interest rates, I think in the UK, they're up at 15% at one point, and in the US, maybe even higher. And of course, the effect of that is to crunch the economy. So the reason that stock prices did badly is that uh, the companies couldn't make any profits because their borrowings and uh, consumer demand for their products were highly you know, under threat, basically. And, uh, but I don't see that uh, happening at the moment. So I would take a sort of, uh, I take the view that we could look at, I mean, also this definition of inflation, what is inflation? Is it properly measured? Probably not. We all know that, you know, if you go back 10 years and you think about, you know, have prices gone up? You might look and think, well, well they have for me because the price of my cleaner has gone up, the price of my, trip on the tube has gone up, uh, but the government might say there's been no inflation over that period. And I, I just think the measurement is wrong. So we have insidious inflation in the UK and in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Um, but inflation we are definitely getting. And I, I, I read every day, as you know, um, lots of economic stuff. And uh, there's no doubt that input prices, which is the price that goes into making goods and services are going up fairly dramatically at the moment. And China, which has provided a great inflationary relief or deflationary relief to us over the last 20 years because the price of imported Chinese goods has gone down and down and down, is no longer going to be providing that relief uh, to Western inflation numbers uh, going forward. Um, and and by, by that, I mean, you know, the price of, for instance, clothes or electronics has been going down relative to incomes dramatically because of the effect of of China's huge production, we're not going to get that anymore. And uh, so inflation only has one way to go. I don't think it's going to be hyperinflation, but on the other hand, you need to protect yourself. And really, absolutely no brainer is to hold precious metals. It's a no brainer. Um, you know, I can't think of anything better to invest in at the moment. And then if you hold bonds, you know, just get, get rid of them because I can't see any upside in bonds. You know, governments, printed a whole load of money they're gonna to have to repay it what's the best way of repaying it inflate it away they've done it many cycles in the past and they're bound to do it again this time and, and that effectively is a default james you know if you inflate your way out of bonds you're, yeah. you may not physically default on the debt but it's a way of, de of effectively defaulting and so the pensioners and the pension funds and the insurance companies that hold the bonds are going to be stuck 
with depreciating assets. Um, you mentioned uh, Brexit and the fact that you know the UK's managed to have a, a, a good uh, vaccine rollout as a as a result of that. I didn't uh, mention Brexit. I just mentioned the European Union's lamentable performance. That's not the same thing. Well, we've had a question on um, on your opinion on Brexit, and um, it's from Chris Smith. So, um, can I have Jim's opinion on the benefits and drawbacks of the first few months after Brexit? Also, what are the likely likely subsequent opportunities and the possible threats? Yeah, well, uh, the uh, Deng Xiaoping was once asked what he thought about the French Revolution, which took place in the 1700s, as you know, and he said it was too early to tell. So I think the effects of the first few months, which have been very mixed, I mean, we've had the issues in the Northern Ireland situation, issues with shellfish, rather surly behavior from the Europeans towards the British, to possibly to be expected. Um, and then, of course, you've had the pandemic, uh, you know, response on the other side, which has made the UK having been abominable at the beginning of the, of the pandemic uh, look extremely good by comparison at the moment. Um, and I think they play the blinder on that one. Uh, it's, I don't think we're going to see uh, dramatic effects either way. Uh, uh, for some time, but overall, um, I would think there are two factors at play. One is uh, there are stresses and strains in the European Union that are becoming more evident. I don't think there's, uh, especially with Merkel going and Macron being under threat next year in the presidential election. I don't think he'll lose, but there's, you know, the, the polls are showing that he might. Um, and I've just been told, by the way, it was not Deng Xiaoping, it was Zhu Enlai, so I got that one wrong. It was Paul Kirkby, he gets the credit for that one. Um, uh, so there are stresses and strains in the European Union, which we're probably better off not to be experiencing. Um, I don't think that, you know, I was always, I took a nuanced view on this. I didn't think it was going to be great, really, either way, but make a huge difference. And I, I don't believe that we should be restricting high quality immigration into our country, and nor do I believe particularly that we have a great deal of sovereignty to preserve because we give up all sorts of sovereignty, you know, to NATO, to the UN, to, you know, trade alliances and all that sort of stuff. So I, I just, you know, we just have to make the most of it. Um, and just to follow on from that, I mean, the, uh, the, the UK uh, stock market is still looking really cheap. Um, we had a question. Well, relative, relatively cheap. Relatively cheap. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we had a question from Taha Dohad Wire. Uh, when are we going to see the FTSE 350 index of mainly domestic consumption stocks outperform? I mean, presumably, if we we expect some kind of really big economic awakening after uh, after um, lockdowns lifted, all those stocks are going to do really well. Well, the FTSE 250 has done a lot better than the FTSE 100, I think, as everyone knows. The FTSE 100 has been is very highly represented with energy stocks, which have been under severe threat, and banks, uh, which again have been, you know, laggards in performance. Uh, the FTSE 250 much better represents the, you know, the domestic economy in the United Kingdom. Uh, my view, you might be better off with a portfolio of banks, especially because as interest rates rise, banks tend to do well. Um, and I mentioned Lloyd's, uh, but you might also HSBC as another one that's, uh, I think, a good investment. And, and con in contrarian fashion, I've been a bull 
for the last few months on uh, big oil companies. And so I think BP and Shell remain good buys at this stage. So, uh, you know, I'm, if you're looking for consumption stocks, then, uh, you know, what's wrong with Marston's as an example? I think it'll be taken out at some, you know, future date. Um, that, that's a good one. Um, I, you know, you can make your own mind up about retail, whether it's going to survive or not, there's what, what, what's online and what's not. But if you're going to buy an online, you know, a, a retailer that's both bricks and mortars and online, I, I, I've been pushing Marks and Spencers for a while and it's gone up quite a lot, but I still think it's a lot cheaper than Ocado. And uh, maybe one day Ocado will just buy Marks and Spencers. And remember that half of uh, Ocado's online business in the UK is owned by Marks and Spencers. Um, and just to finish off then, Jim, because I know you've got um, got to run quite a few more minutes. Yeah. Um, question. Well, my question, actually. Um, Goldman Sachs uh, recently said that they believe we're entering a new, uh, well, a rerun of the, the roaring 20s. Do you buy that? And, uh, and if so, when's the Great Depression? Oh, um, well, have you gone back and looked at Goldman Sachs? I mean, I don't want to denigrate <laughs> them, but have you looked at their previous forecasts? Because I don't think they're very good. I mean, they're very good at predicting their own uh, profit outcomes, but whether you know their economic forecasts are any good or not is another matter. But uh, look, I mean, the roaring, uh, we are going to come out of this roaring. I think GDP growth in the UK will be, as I've said for a while, much higher than most people think this year and next year. We will next year probably be the strongest growing economy in the G7. Uh, will certainly surpass the pre-pandemic uh, output probably by the end of this year, and then we'll have a very strong period of outperformance. And it's important to remember that the UK uh, by 2040 will be bigger than the German economy, and that's based on demographic trends as well as economic trends. So we shouldn't talk ourselves down too much, and we're already 7% bigger than the French economy. When I was a child growing up, our income per head was about half that of Germany, and about two thirds that of France. So it's been a remarkable performance. And there's one person who some people don't like, but I like very much, who's responsible for our transformation, and that's Margaret Thatcher. Well said. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, um, I think we've got a slide to show you. I think it's a slide of evil can evil, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, so yeah, this is for um, for you guys just to take note of. So, some forthcoming events uh, at Massive Investor. We've got three steps to steady investment growth, and that's with VectorVest on the twenty seventh of April. Um, and we've also got Ask Evil, which is a Q and A um, with me, and that's on the thirteenth of May. So, uh, dates for your diary. Also, you can sign up for those at events.masterinvestor.co.uk. Um, and also don't forget to share your feedback with us and um, so yeah look out for the survey which will be um, coming into your email boxes shortly afterwards and yeah i just want to say thanks to jim for taking part and uh, thanks to everybody for watching so take care enjoy the sun bye, bye thank you very much thanks james thanks everyone for attending it's really nice to do these things and um hopefully you'll come back for another one thanks Good stuff. bye bye